4: Throughout its long and storied history, Elektra has been one of the most adventurous and diverse record companies in the music industry. I'm Jim DiRigatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Codd from the Chicago Tribune. We're going to talk to Jack Holzman, who founded
2: this pioneering independent record label, and we're going to review the new hit album by British soul singer Adele.
4: That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And now it's time for some music news.
2: That's Randy Newman with the song We Belong Together, which just recently won an Academy Award for Best Song. It was from the Toy Story 3 movie. Newman has been nominated 20 times for an Oscar. This is only the second time he's won. Newman has gotten a lot of money and a lot of credibility from the Hollywood industry, and it has enabled him to continue making these really obscure but really cool pop records for the last 40 years now he hasn't sold a lot of those records but he's written some incredible songs sail away baltimore "God's song those kind of tunes couldn't have been written probably if he hadn't been making this money from hollywood he would not have been able to sustain that solo career without the revenue from hollywood now we're seeing a, a kind of momentous a sea change in the way they are awarding soundtracks this year, Trent Reznor and his partner Atticus Ross won for Best Movie Soundtrack for The Social Network. They were up against some stiff competition. We're talking about Hollywood insiders like uh, Hans Zimmer and A.R. Rahman who have won in the past for fairly traditional scores. Reznor took it out of that traditional league and made basically Nine Inch Nails-style electronic music as the backdrop for The Social Network. Which, which really fit a movie about about Facebook. Totally. And what was fascinating to hear was Reznor humbled by winning this award. He was clearly saying, you know, I'm, I felt like I was out of my league here, so for me to win this award was a tremendous validation. But he also mentioned something that Hans Zimmer told him. In a lot of ways, I hope you win because it's helped open up the field a bit for texture of what film scores can be. And I think Reznor is signaling here a possibility that now that the record industry is imploding, that there are a lot of pop and rock artists who could maybe look at Hollywood as a possible outlet for their work as
4: a way to sustain their careers. Well, this is true, but there is a flip side to this, too. I'm also hearing Billy Corgan singing the intro music for that new (laughs) TV show, Chicago Code, all right? We can have the good side of it like Reznor's music and then the bad side. I think the bottom line is that artists are struggling to find other ways to make money. The joke that Randy Newman had was, I don't understand people wanting to break into the music industry today. It's like trying to break into a bank that's just been robbed, (laughs) Those are the seeds with a garage rock classic from the mid-60s, Mr. Farmer. Greg, I think coolest song in rock history ever written about a guy growing pot. <laughs> The Seeds were not a household name, but they were one of those Nuggets bands that recorded several hits in the mid-60s. Also on that list, Can't Seem to Make You Mind, and of course, Pushin' Too Hard, which was their biggest and best-known hit. If you don't know it, kids, you have seen that commercial for Axe Body Spray, and it powers that commercial. Why do I mention that? Because you would think that with three songs that got that much radio play in the mid-60s and ever since, and which have been covered by literally hundreds of bands, some big ones too billy corgan johnny thunders the ramones garbage that there would have been some money you know a little bit of money this band might have made in fact according to a lawsuit now in front of the los angeles superior court sky saxon the singer and songwriter behind the seeds only ever received three payments in the entire 37 years since he signed with gnp Crescendo Records. He got $500 for Pushing Too Hard. He got $350 for all of his artists and producer royalties. And he got $250 for his music publishing royalties. Those three sums for an entire career of songs that everybody who's a hardcore rock fan knows. The argument by the Saxon estate. He died two years ago. We did an obituary on sound opinions. His wife is filing this suit, pushing it hardest against the record company, GNP, is that this was unconscionable. Maybe Sky signed those contracts, but they were wrong. They were wrong as, quote, a matter of public policy. They were unconscionable. The courts are going to decide if that is the case or not. What's of interest is oldest story in the book, right? Artists who had a hit saying we never saw any money from it. Other artists are going to be watching what the courts do with this case and possibly filing similar lawsuits in the future.
1: She keeps a mower in a pretty cabinet in the big case, she says just like Marie
0: Antoinette a building, a remedy for Christoph and Kennedy
1: and at a time limitation, you can
4: You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that is Queen performing Killer Queen from their 1974 album, Sheer Heart Attack. That tune never gets old. It's the first U.S. hit for the band, but one of many for its label here, Electra Records. Our guest today is Electra founder Jack Holtzman. He recently celebrated the label's sixtieth anniversary and he'll be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this month. Greg, when Holtzman opened Electra's doors in nineteen fifty, it was part of the blossoming of the American independent record movement. There were hundreds of small labels, all of them dedicated to different genres. Holtzman's genre of choice at first was folk, and Electra became the home to Judy Collins and Theodore Bekel, among others. But as the label grew, it really spread out. Blues, rock, funk world music pop artists all of them were added to the roster some of the names the stooges the doors love carly simon harry chapin over the years as Elektra went through a number of transitions including joining the major label group warner music jack holtzman experienced every stage of the record business all the ups and downs so lucky for us he's here with us jack welcome to sound opinions thank you so much for having me here Jack, you entered the record business before there even was much of a business. How'd you get on the path? Well, imagine a kid who loves music, who loves
5: everything that has to do with radio and audio electronics, back before there was an audio industry, who is very closed in, who never can imagine himself ever working for anyone else. And suddenly, he sees one day a picture of Dr. Peter Goldmark from the CBS Labs standing beside a stack, a giant stack, much taller than Dr. Goldmark, of 78 RPM albums. And under his arm, he has a very tiny stack of equivalent LPs. Hmm. Now, that was a big thing going off in my head because it indicated to me that it was possible to start your own record company where you could advance your tastes and work for yourself, and if you were lucky, you might actually make a living doing it. So I decided to start Electra Records. I had two passions, both of which I were I was able to make use of as Electra progressed. First was folk music, and I started with Gene Ritchie and the songs of her Kentucky Mountain family, followed it up by uh, the songs that Frank Warner had collected from the North Carolina mountains, and continued on this trajectory for years.
0: All oh, love is teasing and love is pleasing mm, Love's a pleasure when first it is new But as love grows older, it still grows colder mm, fades away like the morning dew All you fair maids, now take a warning. Don't never heed what a young man say. He is like a star on some foggy morning. When you think he's near, he is far away.
5: Eventually, we got to a point where Electra was
4: self-sustaining, but that took about eight years. But now, now this began when you were still at St. John's College and you were running out of your dorm room? In 1950, is that right? I I went
5: I matriculated in 1948 and this was 1950 October 10th is the first entry in the books which is why we celebrate The electoral year from October 10th of 2010 until October, I guess, October 10th of uh, 2011. No, there's an empty dorm room, and I need a place to work out of because I didn't want to confuse my St. John's (laughs) studies with whatever else I was doing, which was extracurricular. But St. John's was a very unusual school. It had no textbooks. And I started, made my first album, which happened to be an album of modern leader, which nobody was interested in, uh, and quickly switched to folk music because with folk music you could have a very special, a non-duplicatable performance or exposition by an artist that nobody else would be able to copy.
0: He's a kind of guy puts on a motorcycle jacket and he weighs about a hundred and five. He's the kind of surfer, got a whole daddy haircut, and you wonder how he'll ever survive. He's the kind of frogman wearing 20 pounds of counterweights and sinking in the sea like a stone. He's the kind of soldier, got no sense of direction, and they send him in the jungle alone. But when the frog's on the pumpkin and the little girls are jumping, he's a hard-loving A spoonful
2: of fun. You were pretty ambitious on a number of levels, Jack, not only starting your own label in the face of, uh, you know, there were major labels back then that were dominating the industry, and then not only that, there's an artistic side to what you were doing as well. I mean, you love this music, and you were recording a lot of it yourself. I mean, there's the story of Jack Holzman on his Vespa motor scooter with the PT6 tape machine strapped across right. your back, right,
5: recording these artists in their, in their homes? Uh, uh, uh. Absolutely. I did pack my Vespa with a mic stand, one microphone, a set of tank headphones that I had bought surplus, and a MagnaCord PT6 recorder. It was a splendid little machine. And I would go to people's homes, and I would set, we'd set up blankets against the wall to deaden the sound a bit. The sound that I was looking for was the artist to be in front of the speaker. It was you and the artist in the room together.
6: I went down to that St. James infirmary, and I saw some plasma there. I upturned and asked the doctor, man, now was the donor a dark affair? The doctor laughed a great big laugh, and he puffed it right in my face. He says, a molecule is a molecule, son, and the damn thing has no race. And that was news, yes, that was news. That was very, very, very special news Cause ever since that day we've had those B&D blues
5: When I first recorded Josh White, who had, I thought had always been very, very badly recorded, when we were in the first session and he heard the first playback, he said, you're going to get that on the disc, and I guarantee that we would. But I had... Every artist that I recorded, I had a sound design in mind for them. Mm-hmm. And these are the things, there was no place to learn this except by doing it and making mistakes and remembering those mistakes and improving what you did in the future. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the, you know, in the 50s,
2: it wasn't a massive market for folk music necessarily but the time sort of caught up with it by the late '50s, certainly by the early sixties folk was everywhere so you were you were the right man with the
5: right label at the right time i would imagine well, I thought we fit in quite well. By that time, we had a very successful catalog. We had major artists like Ed McCurdy and Josh White and Theo Bikel who was so important for us. It was very, very tough for us to get radio play because that was the primary, uh, the way you moved folk music and the way was people talking about it with each other and playing records uh, for their friends when they were over to the house. The very, very few radio shows were mostly on public radio stations at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. But over time, that changed, and college radio became especially important. And it was nice to be in on something early, and I think that's generally the story of Electra. I followed my interests Mm. when I had those interests. I wasn't waiting for the rest of the world to catch up. It's a very enlightened
2: attitude. Just talking to you, Jack, about your story, you can sense you're you're a huge music lover that's still coming through to this day. It seems like that's where the music industry has lost its way in a lot of ways, that people who don't really love music or don't know much about music are running these big corporations now. And yet you were able to do it back, back in that era kind of just on an instinctual basis, not thinking about commerciality necessarily, but about the art itself.
5: It's certainly true of most independent labels. But even the attitudes of some of the major label groups, I'm still associated with the Warner Music Group because I merged Electra with Warner and Atlantic Records in 1970 so that we could afford our own domestic distribution and our own overseas distribution. It's a decision I never regretted. But the brilliance of the chairman of of Warner Communications was he let us each run our units without, without bothering us at all. We cooperated where cooperation was required, but we would go after the same artists. The chairman felt, you know, if I've got you and Amit Erdogan going after the same artists, one of you guys are going to get it. Mm-hmm. I cannot tell you about the other music groups. I observe Universal and Sony and what is left of EMI. I know the Warner Music Group, and I think that attitude is reasonably prevalent within Warner Music Group. Otherwise, I still wouldn't be associated. Mm-hmm. Now, you made the transition. You said you followed the music with
2: the folk era, and now you're transitioning into the rock era. The Paul Butterfield Band was a big part of that.
5: Yes, very much so. Blues with a
1: feeling That's what I have today
2: a racially integrated group based out of Chicago, a white guy at the forefront playing the blues. Not exactly a stock move at that point. I mean, it would certainly become hugely popular within a couple of years. But again, what led you to this group in particular?
5: I never noticed it was a racially mixed band. I'm a guy who's used to being in New York City and seeing racially mixed jazz groups. It made no impression on me at all. First of all, I didn't find the Butterfield Blues Band. Paul Rothschild, our producer, found it. And he called me when I was in London and said, I found this band and I think we should record them. And I said, yes, go by, go right ahead. I didn't do this by myself. I worked with very good people who were carefully selected and trusted their instincts. Yes, I did sign major groups like Queen of the Doors, which were personal signings. But all of the things that went to make up Electra over the years were contributions by many other people who saw the way we worked wanted to see Electra survive and help me.
4: We'll continue our conversation with veteran record executive Jack Holtzman after a quick break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And coming up, Greg and I will review new records by British soul sensation Adele and American singer-songwriter Lucinda Williams. Sound Opinions, I'm Jim DeRogatis, my partner is Greg Cott, and our guest this week is Electra Records founder Jack Holtzman. The label just celebrated its 60th birthday, and Holtzman will be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this month. That, of course, was You're So Vain by Electra artist Carly Simon, a classic tune about an obnoxious person. It's long been the subject of debate who that person was. Mm -hmm. But now, Jack, it could potentially characterize any number of artists you dealt with over the years on Elektra's roster. Talented people, for sure. Mm -hmm. But, Jack, you never did things the easy way, whether it was signing temperamental artists or battling over making records retail friendly. You've dealt, right, with some legendarily difficult characters.
5: Oh, there was only one person I ever tossed off the label, and that was Delaney Bramlett, Delaney and Bonnie. I should have known, when he put his wife's name second to his name, that trouble would be brewing. Hmm. But yes, I had, uh, I guess what seemed to the outside like difficult artists, but for the most part, I had no trouble with any of my artists. I was intimately involved with all of the artists because I was their surrogate for the audience. I didn't always attend every recording session. The Doors purposefully asked me not to be at the sessions because they thought I'd make them nervous. But I worked on all of the material with the artist before we went in. We never went into a session without knowing exactly what it was we were going to record. That didn't mean we were rigid. That left lots of... Knowing what you're going to do leaves you room, gives you license to experiment. But I rarely had problems with artists, even the reportedly difficult ones.
4: Okay, all right. But here you have the MC5 debuts with a record yep. kick out the jams mm-hmm. part of the white panther party in detroit with a manifesto in the middle yeah. of their their album cover calling for a, a violent revolution guns dope and and blanking in the streets yeah. I, I could see how some retailers uh, might object to that policy
5: I looked upon that as a sort of a form of anthropology. <laughs> I was interested in how the MC5 used their music to advance their agenda, which is why I wanted to record them.
3: Cause we all do, no, the and got
0: got
3: baby
5: of course they also said you really have to take this other sort of mascot group we have which turned out to be the Stooges that I was a bit resistant to at the beginning but that Danny Fields who was one of our artist relations people talked me into and it's like someone that talked you into buying a fine painting except you didn't know it was a fine painting at the time and later becomes enormously valuable Down. willing to take chances i guess that was the difference i was of the opinion that if you made the records carefully at reasonable cost and everybody was prepared the worst thing that could happen was that the record didn't work at which point you give the
4: masters back to the artist and wish them well but that did work What about Love and Arthur Lee? I mean, a famously eccentric and and difficult character. Another artist, like the Stooges, or Lee MC5, whose influence only came out of the wash a decade or two decades after those records. Yeah, that's a shame. But Arthur Lee
5: is enormously important in the history of Elektra. Back in 1960, late 65, early 66, I thought I had signed The Love and Spoonful only to find out that I hadn't signed The Love and Spoonful, and I was downcast, because John Sebastian, who was the leader of the group, and I were good friends, but he had signed a publishing contract, which turned out to also be a recording contract, and I was without my group. I was desperately looking for the kind of rock group that made sense in that as i 've said before, you could boogie and and feel that you were being intellectually stimulated at the same time, and I would go to all kinds of clubs. I was in Los Angeles and I went through a list of the clubs in the local weekly free press newspaper and I saw a group called Love, which I had never heard before. What an interesting name for a group, So I went there and I went into this club that was like the black hole of Calcutta <laughs> uh, but with the wildest scene girls with perfectly ironed hair dancing and Arthur standing on the stage looking through these prismatic sunglasses with one lens red and one lens uh, bluish green and uh, I heard Hey Joe and My Little Red Book and I heard some other very very unusual songs and I knew that I had found my band and I had Arthur signed within four or five days I right
3: through my little red book. I was and, cry. and I went from A. to
5: The group was amazing, and Arthur was one of the few true musical geniuses I have ever met. He was just terrific. He had one serious failing. He would not leave Los Angeles to tour or to work with the group. He only wanted to play in L.A., so he turned down an opportunity to be at the Monterey Pop Festival. That was a shame, because they would have been terrific there. Yeah. But we continued to work with Arthur through four albums, and the third album was Love Forever Changes which most people think is one of the top 20 rock and roll albums of all time certainly one of the most influential
1: Life
3: goes on here Day after day I don't know if I am living or if I'm supposed to be Sometimes my life is so dreary.
0: And if you think I'm happy, paint me yellow.
5: Arthur also did me one other gigantic favor. One night, I was—I sort of went to the club to see him at what was two o'clock in the morning for me, because I had just gotten off an airplane from New York. And he said, "You ought to stick around for the other band. I think they're talented." And that other band was The Doors.
4: Now, <laughs> Tell us about Morrison. I mean, he was just recently posthumously exonerated of exposing himself, and my never should have
5: been accused in the first place. Well, he
4: never should have been tried in the first
5: place. I think if if Jim is aware of any of this, he would be really pissed off
4: that he that he was pardoned. Yeah, I'm sure. Again, not an easy guy, a guy who wanted cultural, intellectual, artistic revolution at every turn. What was the real Jim Morrison like? (laughs) Well, was he fun to hang out? Could you go out and have a beer with Jim Morrison? Yeah, The problem was, could you go out and have a drink with Jim Morrison? Yes. If
5: you only had one drink, to every one of Jim's five, <laughs> because you did not want to go glass for glass, arm <laughs> for arm with Jim Morrison, you would not survive. Mm. But uh, I remember a conversation with Jim one night. Uh, Jim and I shared an interest in literature and an interest in film. And we were out there, and we were talking about film and stuff, and, and he thought I was being too cautious, and he says, Jack, you got to live closer out on the edge. And I said, yeah, Jim, I don't mind living on the edge. The trick is not to bleed. <laughs> and yeah. unfortunately, he bled. Yeah. But he was, he was a gentle spirit, and the, the secret of working with Jim was just let him be. The
1: time you hesitate is through no time to wallow in the mind China we can only lose And our love become a funeral pyre Come over baby, light my fire Come over baby, light my fire Try to set the night on fire. yeah
5: He was a member of the band and I Never would speak to Jim separately from the rest of the group. I always spoke to the group with my one voice and heard what they wanted with their one voice. Everybody didn't agree, nothing would happen. And I thought that was that was remarkable. They shared all publishing royalties equally, no matter who, who had written the song, because they were all necessary to prepare the arrangement and, and to flesh out the promise
4: of the song. One more question of legendary excesses. Sure. Queen, for a time, one of the biggest bands of the 70s, infamous were its press parties, its junkets, its album launches. And to this day, I mean, Greg and I were kids when Jazz by Queen came out. But that was supposed to be a bacchanal, unrecognized in the history of the music industry, as as were all the Queen album launch parties. Was it really that Mm -hmm. much fun? I didn't go to them. (laughs) <laughs> Most of the queen,
5: queen launch parties happened in the UK. Mm. I didn't socialize a lot with the artists, and the reason, there was a reason for that. There would come a time when I would have to say something hard to them, perhaps. And if I was too friendly, it made it difficult for me to tell them the truth. And the artists appreciated that. Over the years, I've maintained close touch with all of my artists and see them and write to them and uh, have conversations with them constantly. It's been a real treat to have a relationship with Carly Simon of of 40 years, Judy Collins of got over 50 years. We're we're very close. It was
2: a delicate dance in terms of dealing with the egos, the personalities, the artistic sensitivities, Mm -hmm. you know, the... Paul Butterfield debut record was recorded three times before you felt Mm that they got it right. I know that you had a hand in mixing the Stooges first album because you weren't happy with the way it initially sounded. How were you able to do this without, say, offending the artistic sensibility? Because you obviously were a music lover, but at the same time there was something you were not hearing that you didn't like. How would you communicate this to the artist and how would they take it?
5: Well, uh, when I heard the first mixes of the Stooges, The power of the band, what is uh, the thing that brought me to rock and roll was the incredible energy of it. There are things you could do with a rock band in terms of underlining and emphasizing and bringing a lyric to a very, very large audience and giving it an explosive frame that was so exciting to me that went beyond folk music it went beyond so-called folk rock which i always thought was a rather an abysmal (laughs) uh, combination so when i heard the mixes for the album i i knew that uh, for the stooges first album i knew that wasn't quite right so we had a small mixing facility at our new york offices in addition to our studios which we had out on the west coast and I went in and put the master tapes on, and I just decided to turn the volume of everything up to the needles were pinning <laughs> on every track. I listened to that, and I rather liked that. And <laughs> the Stooges liked that. Uh-huh. That was the end of that. Everybody thought, that's neat, let's issue it that way. So we made the mix that way, and that's what we released.
1: So messed up! I want you!
2: In doing that, you must have realized, well, I may just be killing their chances for any radio programmer to be playing this, because he
5: probably would put it on and say, what's what's this noise, right? Yeah, well, you always have that kind of problem, and I don't worry about it. I make records the way I think the records should be made. And I worry about the marketing, which is really nothing fancier than connecting willing ears to interesting music. And we would find somebody somewhere who would play it, would write it, And we'd get the ball rolling. Mm -hmm. The Stooges never sold a lot of records, but they were enormously influential. The records are still very much in print. And that's what is meaningful to me, is that all of the things that I worked on are still, for the most part, pretty much available out there. And the beauty of digital means that it's very easy and inexpensive to release almost entire catalogs. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Jack,
2: because you came into the music industry at a time of a great technological change, the transition to the 33 and a third vinyl album. And now we're seeing this transition to digital, obviously. What would you tell the aspiring Jack Holzman of today about
5: starting their own label? Are there any lessons you would you would impart to them? Oh, absolutely. First of all, go do it. But ask yourself, are you really willing to put in the time and effort because it's it's You'll be, even when you're sleeping, you're going to be dreaming about what you're doing. Hmm. Are you willing to back the artist? Are you willing to go for your own taste and trust your own taste and not chase the charts as to what seems to be popular at the moment? If you're willing to do that and you can put together enough money to keep this thing going, I'd say absolutely do it because today is not dissimilar. It does bear a resemblance to when I started, when there was a more level playing field. First of all, back in the 50s and early 60s, the majors were often a world by themselves. We were creating a fuller universe of material, music, entertainment that people could draw upon. So I think if you've got the will and the stamina to do it and you love music, go ahead and take your shot.
1: Although you've spoken many times before The sight of birth he leaves you by a door And now you know he doesn't understand And all you need is the warmth of his hand
2: Jack Holzman, it's been a real treat having you on Sound Opinions. I had a wonderful time. Take good
5: care, guys.
1: And if it's my loving blood would dance One silent kiss leaves you in a trance
2: To listen to more of our conversations on the show, visit soundopinions.org. And to make a comment on the air, call 888-859-1800. Coming up, Jim and I are going to review new albums by Adele and Lucinda Williams. That's In A Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And
1: on that day your love and tears all as free as seabirds climb the skies and you One day the question...
4: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis with Greg Cott, and that is one Adele Laurie Blue Adkins with a song called Rolling in the Deep, the lead track from her second album, Twenty One. Greg, as we tape this, it is the best-selling album in America today. Another rare, chart-topping success for an artist who uh, came out of nowhere only a little more than two short years ago. She was 19 at the time, hence the title of that album, 19, another in the pack of British neo-soul divas, returning to that wonderful sound of soul music in the 60s, not unlike Duffy, who we've reviewed on this show, or Amy Winehouse, but with some serious songwriting chops, like... Leona Lewis or Imogen Heap. I always thought the coolest thing about Adele is that she made no pretense to what she was doing. When I interviewed her in 2009, shortly before she won the Grammy as Best New Artist, a big laurel, she was like, hey, I was a hairdresser. The way I became interested in the music of of people like Etta James was I was trying to copy their hairdos. I bought (laughs) all these old albums because I liked the way they looked, and then I fell in love with the music. Obviously, she had a powerful instrument to apply to music like that. The big hit that Powered 19, that debut album was called Chasing Pavements, now comes the much, much, much anticipated second album. She's continuing to work in part with the songwriting partner who co-wrote Chasing Pavements with her, Francis White, but she's also got some really big names in terms of producers, people who've worked with Beyonce, we have Rick Rubin doing uh, four tracks on this album, we have Hollywood songwriting superstars, Dan Wilson, former Minneapolis indie rocker now writing songs for the Dixie Chicks, and Adele. Let's hear one of those songs from the album, and we'll give our opinions when we come back. This is Turning Tables on Sound Opinions from Adele.
0: Close enough to start a war All that I have is on the floor
3: God only knows
0: what we're fighting for All that I
2: That's Turning Tables from Adele from her new album, 21, her second album. 21-year-old Adele Atkins. Jim, she has definitely amped up the firepower on this record. The production is definitely much more in your face than that more muted debut record. A lot of folk-based acoustic tunes on that first album. This one has a much more modern production sound, for better or worse. I like the fact that there's more rhythmic drive in tracks like Rolling in the Deep and Rumor Has It. But what I love most is this woman's voice. I mean, there is no sense of over-emoting like you hear in a lot of pop singers these days. Those endless ulilations, those melismas. She just cuts right... To the heart of a song. The quality of the voice trumps the songs. I don't think the songwriting is very good, even though she's got these high powered producers and songwriters in many cases. I think they're fairly cookie cutter. And as a result of that, I'm kind of on the fence here buy it, burn it. Eventually, I just love listening to that voice so much that I'm on the buy it side of the scale. But I think with the next album, I'd love to see a little stronger songwriting to
4: match the quality of that great, great voice. Greg, I had a thang for Adele. I love that album, and it was one of my favorite interviews I did in 2009 when I got to talk to her. She has broken my heart. Mm. She has gone Hollywood. The voice is there. You are absolutely right. Alternately bold and brassy, sweet and subtle, defiant and angry, soft and vulnerable. It's an amazing instrument. She should know better than to sing some of the nonsense that she's singing. Her life has had to get better in the last two years, and yet we still have her in the same place as when that guy left her behind and she went chasing pavements. That's part of the problem. The other part is yielding to this production. Ryan Tedder, stick with Beyonce and Kelly Clarkson. Rick Rubin, I've said it before, we'll say it again, will endure the hate mail. Most overrated producer in the history Mm. of rock and roll. Best thing he ever did, put a microphone in front of Johnny Cash and leave him alone. That's what he should have done with Adele because I expected so very much. I have to give this a trash it and I'm so disappointed and I just want her to go back in the studio tomorrow and try again.
2: Lucinda williams with the song buttercup from her new album blessed it is her 10th studio album dating back to the late 70s southern born singer-songwriter she's been on the scene for a long time usually with uh, much more respect than actual commercial sales the first 20 years of her career were kind of a struggle but uh, people like tom petty and mary chapin carpenter picked up on her songs started covering them got a wider audience. In the late 90s, she won a number of awards for her Car Wheels on a Gravel Road album. That was the big breakthrough, and in the last decade has been a lot more prolific. As I said, 10 studio albums, but nearly half of those have been in the last 10 years. It's kind of freed her up to be herself. Much like Adele, her big subject is unrequited love. That has been the major theme, I would say, on most of her previous nine albums. But things changed for her in her own life a couple of years ago. She got married to her manager. They got married actually after a gig in Minneapolis, somewhat appropriate for a person who has spent most of their life touring and playing shows. So she's in a happier place now. And the question is, okay, now that she's kind of a little bit more settled in her private life, uh, what's she going to write about now? We're going to talk about that in a minute, but let's play a track from Blessed first. It's called Seeing Black from Lucinda Williams on Sound Opinions.
3: How did you come up with the day and time? You didn't tell me you'd change your mind. How could I have been so blind? I didn't know. John of shit. Never hear my voice, did you see my face? Did you finally get tired of running the race? Did you use a compass to get out of this place? Did you feel your act was the final truth? A dramatic ending of a
4: That is Seeing Black by Lucinda Williams from her new album, Blessed, On Sound Opinions, this is a song, Greg, that she wrote for Vic Chestnut, that incredible singer and songwriter whose obituary we sadly had to do last year took his own life. A song of great sympathy, empathy, understanding, admiration. She thought this was a great artist, and I will add, there's a really nice guitar in there from Elvis Costello, who is not busy being Elvis. He so respects Lucinda Williams as a songwriter. He comes by just to play some guitar on some tracks here. This is a song I love. This is an approach on this album that I love. The other song that is killing me is one called Soldier's Song. It's written from the point of view of a G.I. in a war zone.
3: Can't look my enemy in the eye Baby tells a little one Daddy's gone bye-bye Today I took a bullet through the heart Baby's gonna have to make a brand new start
4: is for once not sitting at the bar talking about the end of a relationship. She has done that eloquently, but in my opinion, she has done it too often. I have always respected Lucinda Williams more than I have loved her. The thing that's great about this album is she is looking into the lives of other people. There is some typical Lucinda Williams boyfriend done me wrong kind of stuff, okay, but there's less inward looking and more empathizing and putting myself in the character of someone else. I like that a lot. What I also like is the producer Don Was is really stretching her, but not in an obvious way. It's not that car wheels on a gravel road, so familiar country pop, slightly alternative sound that we got from her. There's different stuff on here. There's more stuff. There's even a second disc in the special edition of the CD of the original demos. I, I really like this record. Buy it, burn it, trash it. It's a buy it
2: record. Lucinda Williams, I think, has kind of reinvented herself with this record, Jim. Absolutely right. I do think she's stretching herself in a way that you do not expect for an artist who's been at it for 30-plus years like Lucinda has, but she's done it on this record. She's a poet's daughter, This woman knows how to write, and I think I've always respected her as a songwriter, no matter what the subject. Here she is stretching in the subject matter, addressing, as you said, foreign wars, mortality, those kind of things that she hasn't really looked at deeply in the past because she was so focused on her personal life. But more so than that, I think as a singer... Lucinda Williams is matured in a way Mm. that is really eye-opening. It's hard to say. It's like a merger of honky-tonk and cabaret on this record, where there's Mm. moments where she gets that sort of smoky, after-hours vibe, where I just love to hear the quality of her voice. And I do give credit to Don Wise by pulling everything back and letting us hear her really investigate a song, really explore it and really inhabit it in a way that the great singers of the past have done
4: is really an an ear-opener for me. It's a buy-it-all-the-way. So that's two enthusiastic buy-its for the new Lucinda Williams. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we
2: have the Scottish indie pop band The Vaselines in the studio for a live performance and an interview.
4: As always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Nick Myers, our intern, if he was a Electra artist, he'd be the Stooges. Our producer, Robin Lynn, she'd be Carly Simon. Our other producer, Jason Saldana, he'd be Arthur Lee of Love. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, Tori southside Malatia. East Theodore Bikel.
2: And sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800.
6: New messages. Hey, guys, this is Chris from Reno. I've been listening to the podcast for about six months, and I really dig the show. But I do have a piece of constructive criticism. At the top of the show, you, you usually go to music news, and often um, you go straight to how are people going to make money in the new digital world. You've talked about lawsuits. You've talked about other struggles among the large corporate interests. And while that's legitimate news about the music industry, in my opinion it's not really news about music. As a listener and a musician, I don't care so much about the corporate interests. I'm more interested in maybe who's in the studio, planned tours, emerging themes, things along those lines. So that's my two cents. I'm gonna keep listening. Keep rocking on. Hey Jim and Greg, this is Derek in Dallas, Texas. Really enjoyed your show on the monkeys, uh and your discussion with Eric Lefkowitz. I've been a Monkees fan ever since I was a kid. I was too young to watch it in its original syndication, but when it appeared on uh, Saturdays on CBS, I was right there watching it as a dedicated fan and have loved the music ever since. And I'm also glad that you guys spent time talking about the movie Head and the music because I've uh, carried the Monkees into my professional life. Uh, I'm a professor, and many times when I teach a film course, I like to use Head as uh, one of the films to teach in class. And every time I teach a course in narrative theory, I use the film Head. The comments that you and Eric Lefkowitz made that there needs to be some kind of context in order to understand Head, I can personally attest to. Uh, my students have no clue when they see Head what is going on. They can't be the Marx Brothers, they're too young. Columbia Pictures presents The Monkey. Mickey, Davey, Mike, Peter in Head. That's right, Head. What's it all about? Only Victor Mature's hairdresser knows for sure. I always have to show them one or two episodes of the original Monkeys. Then they're able to wrap their brains around what's going on in Head, at least as much as one can wrap one's head about what's going on in Head. Thanks for taking the time to revisit not only that movie, the incredible movie, but the music of the Monkeys. Goodbye. Hey! Hi, this is Tom calling from the frozen wastelands of Lino Lakes, Minnesota. Just got done listening to your podcast of your uh, Monkeys episode. As a child of the 60s, I have very fond memories of the Monkeys, their TV show. I had one of their albums. You were also talking about how their influence spread to other areas. It also spread to Star Trek. Uh, the actor Walter Koenig was chosen to play. Check off on Star Trek, especially for the reason that they wanted to appeal to a younger
1: audience. How close will we come to the nearest Klingon outpost if we continue on our present course? One parsec, sir. Close enough to smell them.
5: That is illogical, Ensign. Odors cannot travel through the vacuum of space. I was making a little joke, sir. Extremely little, Ensign. Most specifically, they were
6: thinking about the monkeys. They gave them that haircut, which was originally a wig, I think, Make him look more like Davy Jones of the Monkees. The Monkees' influence is everywhere. Great show as always, guys. Thanks. Bye. No more messages.